week uh, or this previous week to listen to Jeremy's sermon from the uh, the Sunday before, and just so you know, something really fun is on iTunes. If you listen to sermons and you put it on half speed, like and he's talking half speed, it sounds like he's drunk. So just you know, just saying, if you ever want to get some entertainment while you're listening to a sermon, so um, just happened to find that out, but. Um, I was talking to Paul actually um, this morning about how, how great it is to be able to preach just through a book of the Bible that I don't have to pick a topic or just arbitrarily decide what we're going to talk about this morning that we just jump right in. And so just to give you a little bit of reminder on the context here that Paul's writing this letter to the church in Corinth and right out of the gate, um, the first thing he addresses is the fact that there's divisions among the church. And Um, In last week's text, it said, you know, some of you are saying, I follow Paul. Some of you are saying, I follow Apollos. Um, You're you're dividing over who who you're following and who's, you know, who's like your guy that you're behind, right? And you're creating this sense of almost competition that should not be there, right? That those who co-labor in sharing the gospel are teammates and not competitors. And you're trying to take sides and turn them into competitors, Um, and so he's basically telling them not to do that, that we're not competitors, we're teammates here. Um, and it's really important that we do that, that we don't, we don't look at those who are teaching um, as, as performers that we're to judge how good they are at their craft, at their, at their trade um, of preaching the Word of God, um, but that they're teammates. At, at my church uh, in Rockwell, we actually because of this, like, because we don't want to see other churches even as competitors, we take a few minutes every Sunday morning and we pray for another local church who's being faithful to deliver the gospel. Um, because we want to pray for other churches, but more than anything, as a reminder to ourselves every single week that we're not the only church preaching the gospel in Rockwall, Texas, right? Um, that there's other churches out there and that they're not our competitors, um, but that they're our teammates. Um, and I think that applies this morning. Um, you know, I think just to just to say it kind of out loud, that there's a real temptation this morning for me and for you that is, you know, you guys aren't used to hearing from me, you're used to hearing from Jeremy. Um, and I come in with the very high expectation of being Carmen's brother, right? Um, so you guys are probably expecting a lot because of that. But seriously, I, I mean, there's, I think there's a very real temptation this morning that we would be distracted by that, right? That like, I would be tempted to be distracted by, man, I I don't ever get to, like, preach to these people, and, you know, I've got family here, like, I got to really knock it out of the park today, right? Um, And you guys might have the temptation to say, all right, this is Carmen's brother, this is like a family rivalry here, we're going to see how this goes, and really get out your clipboard and critique, right? And and, and that can can be a distraction, um, because the reality is, like, something big is happening this morning, right? Not because I'm here, but because God has spoken to us, right? God has told us who he is, what he's done, and how we should live. And that what we're doing this morning in this time is we're looking at that, right? That my job is not to come up and impress you with my knowledge. My job is to say, to expose and explain what God has already said, right? And if I become distracted by this other stuff or you become distracted by that, by critiquing or whatever, there's a very real danger that we could miss what God wants to say to us through his word. So I'm just going to ask you to, to partner with me in that and trying to set that aside, not worrying about that, and just listening to what God would say to us this morning through his word. 
Um, and so one of the things that has happened is after, after Paul does this whole thing of, man, you guys are you're creating divisions, you're creating competition, that one of the reasons that comes up is that Paul, when he had preached the gospel to them in Corinth, was by his own admission, not an eloquent speaker. He preached a very simple, basic gospel message to them. And then when Apollos came behind, Paul was a very eloquent speaker, very impressive, very easy to listen to, probably very energetic, right? Um, and then the way kind of Paul wraps all that up, look there in verse 17, 1 Corinthians 1, 17. It says this, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so Paul's basically saying this, that I, I didn't use eloquent speech. I came very simply and very humbly to leave more room for God to receive the credit for what happened among you. And that, that verse is kind of really a setup for this next section, uh, verses 18 through the end of chapter 1, um, where Paul is just basically going to say this, that God loves to use seemingly weak and unimpressive means to accomplish his purposes. That God loves to get the glory, to get the credit by accomplishing his task and his work through things that seem weak. So that there's no question who's to credit for what happens, right? Because it's obviously not the means that he chose to use. It's obviously not us and our weakness that do anything of significance, but that it points the spotlight back to him and magnifies him. Um, and we see that all throughout our scriptures, right? You guys just walked through the book of Exodus, and how often did you see it there that the Israelites literally plundered the Egyptians? Like, they walked out of Egypt with all their gold, all their treasure, all their resources, and all they had to do was start walking away. <laughs> and the Egyptians just started, it's like they started throwing at them. Here, as you're leaving, take all of my stuff, right? It's so obvious that it was not the power of the Israelites that plundered the Egyptians, right? It was, it was in their weakness that they just left. But God was magnified through that, right? He, he was made much of. No one thought the Israelites were that awesome. They thought the Israelites have an amazing, powerful God. And that's what we see all throughout our scriptures, that God loves to use weak, unimpressive things as his instruments so that he would get the glory. And that's what Paul's going to unpack here in this text. And when God does that, I just want us to see three things that happens. When God uses weak, unimpressive means to accomplish his purposes, three things happen with that. And the first is that this is that it seems foolish to us. Like then when we see God using weak and unimpressive tools and means, that seems foolish to us because we, we would never do that, right? I mean, if we were going to set out for some task and we needed like really good people or really good tools or really good resources, we would find the best stuff we could get to give us the best chance of success. Whether that's a tool or a person you need, you would find the best things at your disposal to accomplish your purposes. So it seems sometimes foolish to us that God would choose weak and seemingly unimpressive things when he goes to set about a task. Um, and that's why it says this in verse 18. Look there with me. Verse 18, it says this, for the word of the, the word of the cross, or the gospel, is folly, it's foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And skip down to verse 20, it says this, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly or the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Listen to this, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. What does it mean that the message of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews? Well, think about what the Jews were expecting in their Messiah, right? The Jews were expecting God was going to send them a military conqueror type person, someone to come in to kick butt and take names, right? Someone to come in and just overthrow Rome, right? cast them aside, set himself on the throne as the new ruler, as the new king, and raise God's people up to a political prowess and status of power. That's what they were expecting. And so the idea that that God's Messiah, God's Savior, God's chosen one who was going to rescue his people would come into Jerusalem, ride in on a donkey, get arrested, and die, seemed foolish. That is not how to save a people. You do not rescue a people from their oppression by riding into town on a donkey and dying? That's not going to help anyone, right? That seems foolish. But the reality is that God's wisdom often seems foolish because it's in a, such a different playing field with us. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, I've got uh, three kids. Two of them are old enough to where they eat candy and they absolutely love it, right? Like nothing is better than, than like a piece of candy. And if we were to be walking in the park and we were to see like a yellow starburst out of the package on the ground, you know, covered in dirt. One of my kids, if not both of them, would want to eat it, right? I mean, it's like, because it's candy. doesn't matter what's on it. doesn't matter where it's been. It's candy. And if I were to say to them, um, guys, we're going to pick it up and go, this is a yellow starburst. We're going to throw this away. They would be like, why? And I would explain, well, because the yellow ones are nasty. The pink ones are the best, right? If this were pink, I would be fine with you eating it. No, I'm kidding, of course. I would... I would, say, I would say because we don't know where this has been, it's dirty. Or if we found like a half-empty Coke bottle, right, in a park, and they would, they would want to drink it, right? I mean, they would have no hesitation about picking that up and drinking it. And when I told them no, that would seem foolish to them, would it not? I mean, they would be looking at me like, what are you, this is good stuff here, right? Don't you know how good this tastes? You're just, you're just going to throw it away? <laughs> I mean, that, that action, that decision would seem foolish to them, but it's not because it actually is foolish. It's because I'm thinking on a higher level than them, right? Uh, I'm not saying that I'm super smart or anything, but, you know, compared to a, a three-year-old, I do all right, you know? And so compared to a three-year-old, like I, my thinking, my understanding, the things on my mind are on such a different level that what is actually wise seems to them foolish. And that's what Paul basically says here that like, when God does things like this, it seems foolish to us, right? That on first glance, on first appearance, that seems like a foolish plan to rescue people, right? To send someone into town, to ride into town on a donkey and die. That does not seem like a good plan. It's not because it's not a good plan. It's because God's wisdom and the way he does things transcends ours so much that often what is wise, truly wise with God, seems foolish to us. Something we would never come up with. A plan that we would never devise on our own. And so the gospel turns our understanding of power upside down, right? Jesus said to be great in the kingdom, you must descend and not ascend. That the greatest among you must be your servant. And then Jesus obviously is the ultimate example of that, right? But 
how Jesus displays and executes acts of power is so different than anything we would ever come up with in our wisdom. A lot of times the Bible will use the term uh, redeemed. You guys, y'all are redeemer church. Surely you've heard that word before, right? That God has redeemed us. And that, that word, uh, uh, really a more a common word that we would understand better for that would be ransom. But when the Bible says that, that Jesus redeemed us, here's what it's painting a picture of. That Let's just say you've got kingdom A over here. And let's just say I'm part of kingdom A. Um, and I'm not a good citizen. I've been a rebel. I've badmouthed the king. Like, I'm, I'm just like, you know, I'm the bottom of the barrel in this kingdom. And let's say kingdom B, they decided to raid kingdom A. And so kingdom B comes over. They do this raid. They pillage us. They knock down part of our wall, all this stuff. Then they leave, and they take me with them as a captain, right? A good king in kingdom A is going, all right, who do you have? And they say, hey, we've got Kai Martin. He's one of the guys that you were about to arrest and put in jail. A good king would be like, all right, y'all have fun with that, right? I mean, that would be the wise thing to do in that situation. But here's what God does is he looks at someone who's been a rebel to his will, who's bucked his authority, right, who's not been a good citizen of his, and says, you know what? I'm going to send my son as a ransom payment to get Kai back. What? That seems foolish to us. The gospel on the surface does not seem like anything you and I would ever come up with, but such is the greatness of God's love and his wisdom, right? That God in that, that, that God took someone who'd been a rebel to his will, you and I put yourself in that situation, and he paid a ransom price to get us back. Though we were not seeking him, he looked upon our helpless estate and sent his son, his blood was the ransom payment, to buy us back out of our slavery into freedom. That's the gospel. And to a Jew, that message just is, it baffles them. That is not how they would do it. And the same to a Gentile, right? To a Gentile, someone who's not Jewish, someone who maybe grew up worshiping pagan gods, think of the gods of mythology, of, of Zeus and Ares and all these gods, that they would picture those gods as their power was d determined by not how they could die, but who they could kill, right? Who could beat who? That was, the, that was what determined the power of your God. And the idea that Christians are worshiping this God who came and died. What? So that's what Paul means. That he says that when God does this, when God works this way, when he uses weak and seemingly unimpressive things to accomplish his purposes, it seems foolish to us on the surface. But it's not because it's foolish. It's because God's wisdom is so much higher than ours that we can't even really understand understand it. And the second thing it does is it magnifies God's greatness. We talked about this in the beginning that God is always seeking to magnify his greatness through our weakness. And I'm going to use that word magnify and here's what I mean by that. I don't mean magnify like a telescope or like a, like a microscope because what does a microscope do, right? If you've got something really, really, really small, you put a microscope in front of it so that it looks bigger than it actually is, and you can see it. And when we talk about God magnifying himself, we don't mean that, right? Because God can't look bigger than he is, right? I mean, when we magnify God, we do it more like a telescope, because what a telescope does, it takes something like a star or a planet that's actually very, 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 very far away, and it looks and seems to be small. 
And the telescope allows us to focus on it in a way to see what's true. That that star, that planet, it is actually not small, right? It's actually massive. But the telescope puts that in perspective for us to help us to see how big and how great that thing really is. And so just to, just to kind of illustrate this, um, I thought about the, the, the great pyramids of Egypt. Um, and uh, specifically the, the one, the Pyramid of Giza, the biggest one. And I want to just put a picture of it. I just did a random Google images search for, uh, the picture, for a picture of it so you could see it. So um, that's what came up. Um, so there's a, there's a picture of the, the pyramid. I don't know if that's the Giza. That's, that's a different one, isn't it? That's not the biggest one. Where are you guys? I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't matter. There's three giant pyramids. But the, the pyramids, if you research them, like, what you're going to see is that like, they're an engineering marvel. Like It's even like a mystery of how 4,500 years ago someone could have built these things. Um, it's just amazing that they had the, the, the understanding, the ability to do that. The Pyramid of Giza is 455 feet tall. Chase Tower in Amarillo is 341 feet tall. So get, get that in your head a little bit. Chase Tower plus another 100 feet. That's how big this thing is. Um, the, it says the base of it is 13 acres. And if you, if you try to figure out how many football fields or like rooms this size 13 acres is, if you add that all up, it's, it's really big. Okay, that's, it, it's huge. That, that, that's what that comes up to. Um, there's some really crazy facts about it too that are just mind-blowing, that like, that are just weird. Like the fact that inside the Pyramid of Giza, it's a constant temperature of 68 degrees because of the thickness of the walls and all that. No matter how hot or, or cold it gets at night or during the day, it's always exactly 68 degrees inside the pyramid, which is also the average temperature of the earth, right? I mean, that's just, that's just weird, right? Like, how did this happen? Um, it faces true north, like the face of it aligns with um, the North Pole within, um, what is it, 120th of a degree. 4,500 years ago, they took the time to build this thing so it aligned with true north, um, with the cardinal directions of the earth. Um, but, but here's the deal. That's all really impressive because it was done 4,500 years ago. If someone were to build that today... Like, we wouldn't be that impressed, right? Because of the tools and the instruments, the technology and the knowledge we have. Like, we'd be like, why didn't y'all put plumbing in this thing, right? I mean, it'd be like a disappointment, if anything. It'd be like, well, what was the point of that? Like, you can't rent that out. Like, this is very impractical, right? It wouldn't be an impressive structure if someone were to build it today. But what makes it impressive is the humble means that they had, right? What makes it a mystery and a marvel is that there's 6.5 million tons of stone and what we found is that the quarry for that thing was over 500 miles away. So they took 6.5 million tons of stone, and somehow, and people say, well, oh, yeah, but that was upriver. Like, okay, is it really that simple to, like, move a, a five-ton rock on a boat? Like, that all of a sudden makes it simple, right? No, it's still crazy, right, that without vehicles or all this modern technology, they transported, the biggest stone is over five tons. So 10,000 pound stone was moved with like, I don't know how, rolling logs? I mean, that's the thing, no one knows. Like people are just baffled by this, that how in the world could they do this? And Paul's basically kind of saying the same thing here. He's like, that, that's what's amazing about what God is doing, that he's choosing to use weak things. Like what would make it impressive today is if someone wouldn't built it without the technology and the tools we have, right? Now, that would be something. I'm into woodworking, and there's kind of, a, there's kind of a, uh, an underground 
you know, um, trend of people who are saying, we want to build this thing out of wood, but I'm not going to use any electricity. And so they use like hand tools. But even then, it's like the hand tool you're using was like CNC mill on a machine that like costs more than my house, you know? And so it's like, you're still kind of cheating, right? But like, if, but it's kind of impressive to do things with simple, ordinary, common means. And that's what's amazing about the pyramids is that they built this stuff with, with knowledge and technology and tools that are just like, no one could pull that off today, right? And that, that, that's what Paul is saying here is that God does this. God uses small, unimpressive, ordinary, weak means to accomplish his purposes so that he gets the glory. So that it's obvious that he is the great one here and not us. And it's funny how Paul, like, he makes this point and he immediately uses them as like the prime example of that. It's like, God loves to use weak, unimpressive, ordinary things. I mean, look at you. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what he says here. Look, in verse, um, look at verse 25. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were, were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And you'd think they would be a little offended by that, you know? It'd be like me come up here and saying, guys, God loves to use weak things to do his purposes. I mean, look at you guys, right? I mean, case in point right here, right? I mean, it almost sounds like a little insulting, but like what Paul's getting at there is that this reality ought to kill your pride, like when you get this, when you understand that God loves to use weak and humble means to accomplish his purposes, it ought to destroy any sense of pride that we might have. And that's where he kind of concludes this thing. Look in verse, um, verse 31, he says this, so that it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then verse 29 above that it says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In Deuteronomy Chapter 7, verse 7, when God is, telling him, God is telling Israel why he chose them. Like, of all the nations that existed on the planet at the time, why did God choose Israel? They weren't even a nation, right? It was just Abraham wandering around as a sojourner. And God chooses him and makes a great nation. Why, why him? Why Israel? Why would God choose Abraham? And he answers it like this. Deuteronomy 7, 7. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the people. God loves to do that to bring honor and glory to his name. Who did Jesus choose to be his followers? The powerful men who could really leverage into a great movement? No. He chose what Acts calls ordinary, uneducated men. Why? To show the world that it wasn't about how powerful those men were but that God was behind it and he was the only way his power, anything significant could come of that. And then Acts, it says, these men have turned the world upside down. And they have, right? I mean, think about the impact Christianity has made on the world today. With 12 ordinary, uncommon men, Jesus launched a movement that literally turned the world upside down. It's funny, um, as a... I used to, I don't do this as much anymore, but I used to speak at um, youth camps, a little, you know, three or four a year. And um, it, it never failed that it seemed like, you know, 
at one camp, there would always be one guy who, like, they would, you know, the youth group would come, and they would always have, like, a couple kids with them who weren't normally in the youth group. And a lot of times it was, like, you know, the star quarterback or the head cheerleader, someone like that. And guys would just, student ministers would tell me this, almost without fault every summer, man, so-and-so's here. And, man, if we could just get that guy, Right? then we would just turn our school upside down for Christ. And like, I get what they're saying, that sometimes God does do that. Sometimes God will choose someone like Paul, who's like got some prowess and got some status, and, and then use, use that and leverage that to make a big impact. But I always just try to remind those guys, like, look, God doesn't need the, <laughs> he doesn't need the quarterback. <laughs> he doesn't need the head cheerleader. In fact, the Bible says that God loves to pick the things that seem weak so that his power and his glory would be magnified above all else. And so as we apply this today, I've just got just two, two challenges for you. And the first one is this, is to embrace your weakness, right? To be okay with that, that, that if, if Paul were here and he would stand up and say that, like case in point, you guys, like be okay with that. Like um, rejoice in that, that God chose you, not because you brought something to the table, Right? But maybe God chose you because he wants to make his power known through your weakness. Right? That oftentimes I think that in order to make an impact in the kingdom, I have to be spectacular. But God says you don't have to be spectacular to be significant. Right? That you don't have to be impressive to be important in the kingdom of God. In fact, it says that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I mean, kids are great at this. Kids get this. Like, Jackson, I think about a six-year-old Jackson, like, if he does something that he's proud of, he wants me to see it, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't do things, like, whether it's an athletic accomplishment or being brave about something, whatever it is, like, he doesn't do it in hopes that maybe that will increase his value in my eyes, right? He understands that his value is as my son, and that he doesn't need to do anything to increase that, right? He gets that. He knows that I love him and I cherish him and I enjoy him, regardless of how high he can climb in the tree in the back. He's still proud of it. He still wants me to see it, but he knows that my, my approval of him doesn't rest on his performance. But I think sometimes we forget that, church. Like, honestly, I think sometimes we view God like a surly teacher, right? Like, Jackson has a teacher at school, Mrs. Catchpole. She's great. She loves him. But as excited as she is to see him in the morning, I think she is equally excited when he leaves, right? I mean, like, she's, she's just as excited at the end of the day when all the kids go back to their own homes as she is, right? That, like, sometimes I think we see God that way, that he just, like, yeah, he loves us, but he just, really deep down, we think he just kind of puts up with us. That deep down, God really, like, yeah, he, he loves me. I know he loves me, but... You know that God doesn't, he doesn't just love you but, 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 and put up with you, right? But the Bible says he cherishes you, that he rejoices over you with seeing that you are a treasure to him. And I think we have a hard time believing that sometimes, right? I think we forget that, think about the way that you, you imagine God feels about the son. The, imagine the way you, that you imagine the father feels about Jesus, that kind of love, that kind of not wanting to just put up with him for a while and then go about his way and send him off, but like enjoying him, being with him, cherishing him. Like the Bible says that's how God feels about us. That he's, his love and his affection and his joy and his value of us is equivalent to that of that of Jesus Christ the Son. 
because his righteousness has been placed upon us. That God does not just put up with us because he's patient, but he cherishes you and loves you and values you like a good father values his son, not like a teacher who will enjoy him for a while but then is glad to see him go, but that rejoices and longs to be in fellowship with us. When we embrace our weakness, it helps us see that, right? That we don't have to perform or do something for God to make him love us. He doesn't need us to be impressive. Psalm 103 says this, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows our frame He remembers that we are dust. Do you know that God does not have unrealistically high expectations of you? That if you're struggling with something, God is not looking down on you with a lack of empathy and saying, just get over it, right? Like when my son is learning to write, I don't look at that and expect him to write like a 15-year-old, right? Like I, I know his frame. I know he's learning. I know he's a work in progress. I know he's growing. I know he's not there yet. And that God, as a good father, sees us the same way, that when we stumble through things, when we struggle through things, he knows our frame. He understands we're going to struggle and we're going to have weaknesses. He knows we are dust and he loves us through that. So internally embrace your weakness and then embrace it in your external role in the kingdom too. Like, Know that you have a role to play, that God doesn't need you to be eloquent, that God loves to advance his kingdom through simple, ordinary means. And that even if you are, right, maybe you are somewhat eloquent, maybe you have some gifts that God is using you in very visible ways in this church, maybe you need to be reminded that you still can't make blind people see, (laughs) right? No matter how well you can preach, no matter how good your speech is, can you make the dead come alive? Because the Bible says that's what happens when someone is saved. Can you make blind people see? No. Regardless of how gifted or visible or whatever we are in the church, we're all equally dependent on God's power if anything significant is to happen through us. But it's a reminder too that if we, when we feel lacking in those things that he doesn't need that. He's that good at what he does. He doesn't need you to be eloquent and impressive. If you think about the people in your life that you have the opportunity to share the gospel with, and sometimes you start to think, well, I might try to do that, but I don't, I don't know if I'm going to do a very good job. He doesn't need you to, right? He doesn't need you to do a great job to do something amazing. He just wants you to be faithful. And he and his wisdom will use that. He'll use it doesn't need you to be impressive or eloquent. I think about the leaders in this church. So true for you guys. Those of you who are visibly leading from the front, Jeremy, Paul, Rex, TV, I'm sure I'm missing some guys, but like, you need stallions to build a cult and you need donkeys to plant a church, right? Like if you're gonna start a cult, some movement and grow something, you need someone who's, really, really impressive to carry that thing. Someone with a dynamic personality, someone with a gifting, with a way with people. You need someone impressive and engaging to start a cult because that's all you have. But when you're starting a church, Jesus didn't ride into town on a stallion. He came in on a donkey, stooped low, got arrested and died. (laughs) And yet that was the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of the planet. 
Your significance in God's kingdom is not about how impressive and eloquent you are. This church doesn't need you to be impressive or eloquent. It needs you to be humble. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the second thing in application wise, I would say is this, is embrace the simple faith in others. Embrace those around you who have maybe a simpler faith than yours, right? That the children in there, what they're, what they're learning, what they're doing, and they come out of there and they say, yeah, we learned that Jesus loves me. Rejoice in that, man. That's awesome. They may get that more than you do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this idea that God just puts up with us, they probably, they may be a step ahead of us in that. And God loves that. God loves the childlike faith. God loves simple, unimpressive faith. And he uses it. Could be a child. It could be maybe a newer Christian who maybe doesn't understand the nuances of soteriology the way you do. But that God loves that. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That for you may mean bearing up with others whose weaknesses drive you crazy. But it's going to help you if you remember that God loves to use those weaknesses to make much of his great name and to magnify himself through those weaknesses. I hope you'll embrace those two things, that you'll embrace your own weakness because of this and you'll embrace the weakness of others knowing that God loves to use our weakness to show that he is great, not us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for